We are Tim and Michelle Hill with Connect Over Coffee, and this is Midlife Realigned. A series of conversations about navigating all the things midlife, helping you live a meaningful second half. Now, in our last episode, we looked at all the different kinds of grief. Maybe not all of them, but a good number of them. There were a lot of them with the hope to open up your eyes to the ways that grief intersects our lives when we're in midlife. And we saw that we deal with grief much more often than when we have a major loss, which is what we think about when we think about grief. Instead, we deal with many kinds of grief on more of an everyday basis, or if not everyday, pretty frequently. If you haven't listened to that episode, you'll find it right before this one. It's number four in the podcast listening app. We talked about types of grief, but not how we experience grief. So we thought we'd dig into that a bit today. But first, before we get into that, let's talk about the why. So why is it important to understand the stages of grief that we're going to talk about today? I think that knowing what they are and having some info about them will help us in getting through them in a positive way, no matter where we are in life. I think having a roadmap is helpful. I mean, just because we aren't getting to Denver in the same way, we still need that map. So it's helpful to be able to anticipate what it might look like is another reason. Another might be that just being able to name emotions or phases of what's happening, the naming of emotional reactions can give us just enough distance from the emotion itself because naming activates different parts of your brain. Um, It gives us just enough distance to be able to process that emotion. I love how we're able to bring neuroscience into every single episode that we do. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Because, you know, wherever we go, our brain's there. That's true. We need to talk about neuroplasticity. Just, I like saying that word. Um, (laughs) You need to like saying it correctly, though. I didn't say it right. Plasticity. Then I'm not going to say it anymore. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Neuroplasticity. Plasticity. Plasticity. There you go. Neuroplasticity. There you go. You got it. Now you you can say it. So now that I've named it, (laughs) (laughs) I I, I had a little distance from it. That's right. Now I can process it. Yep. So let's think of another one. Uh, Knowing... Another word I say incorrectly? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure we could find that, but let's not go there. That's a long list. That's No, it's not. But knowing the stages of grief can ground us when everything feels like it's falling apart. So being able to recognize where you are on that roadmap can give you a sense of normalcy. Like, oh, this is to be expected. I am not actually going crazy because grief can be intense and confusing. One moment you want to cry and the next moment you want to laugh. And one moment you feel relief and then you feel guilt for feeling relief. So it's a really confusing process. It is. And understanding the patterns associated with grief can give us something to affirm a fraction of normalcy when it feels like nothing is ever going to be normal again. I think it can also give us a benchmark to know when we've strayed far enough from the umbrella of, quote, normal to know when we really need to get outside help, when that could be really important. Loss and its associated grief is essentially the experience of transformation. Nora McGurney, founder of the Hot Young Widows Club, said, we don't move on from grief. We move forward with grief. So it's not something that we get over or get through. It's something that changes us and it's present with us from that moment on. So as we talk through the stages of grief, you can use them to find comfort and know where you are on that roadmap, but you can also know that there's no right way to do this. These just might be helpful ways to categorize parts of your journey. That is correct. 
Um, there's no right way, of we said. There's different ways to get there, um, but you need to know certain points on the map. There are five stages of grief, or at least a couple of them. There's, there's a lot of them, or depending on who you listen to, how many there are. But it's good to know that each person goes through each stage at different paces. There is no wrong way. Grief is also personal. It's not very neat or linear. In short, it'll be messy. And that's okay, because it doesn't follow any timeline or schedules. You may cry, become angry, withdraw, feel empty, and then cry some more. And none of these things are unusual or wrong. Everyone grieves differently, but there are some common experiences in those stages during grief. I think we mentioned that idea of, quote, normal last week, that it doesn't feel like the right word exactly. But that's what we're talking about today, the the big armful of generalities that fall under that term, normal grief. So if if you are experiencing or have experiencing something that, that falls outside of that, that's not what we're talking about, the idea of, quote, normal grief. Um, we ought to dig into how something with so much variability can actually get named normal. But instead, let's answer the question, where did the stages of grief actually come from? Where does this whole idea come from? Because I know that the public latched on to this idea so quickly that it's become ingrained in in the way all of us think about grief. It was only 1969 that a Swiss-American psychiatrist named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote in her book on death and dying that grief could be divided into five stages. And her observation came from working with many years with the terminally ill individuals. So we can expect five stages. What are they? They are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And not everyone will experience all five stages. And they may not go through them in that order that I just gave. But, you know, grief, as we said, is different for every person. So you may begin coping with loss in the bargaining stage right off the bat and then find yourself going into anger and denial next. And you may remain in one stage for months or skip stages altogether. So you never know. I mean, it's like I said, it's personal. It's different for every person. And I think that that's worth repeating. We're going to say it several times throughout this broadcast that... While we may be under the umbrella of normal, there's infinite variation in normal. So if you hear us repeat that, we want you to understand that. That's one of the things we want you to come away with this is that while grief may be experienced by all of us sort of in these categories, that that there's not really there's nothing wrong if you go through it completely differently than someone else. So Absolutely. Let's start at the top. Let's talk about denial. Denial. It's not a river in Egypt, has had to say that. No, no, you didn't. (laughs) Grief, obviously, is an overwhelming emotion. It's not unusual to respond to the intense and often sudden feelings by pretending that the loss or change isn't happening. You just deny it. I've seen people spend a lot of time here. They think they'll wake up and all will be right with the world. And that's, and that's fine. That's a coping mechanism. Initially say, okay, maybe it didn't happen. It gives you a little time to figure it out. It gives you time to absorb the news and begin to process it. This is a common defense mechanism, and it helps numb you to the intensity of the situation. And I think some of that absorption happens subconsciously. 
And as you move out of the denial stage, however, the emotions you've been hiding will begin to rise. You'll be confronted with a lot of sorrow that you've been not denying, uh, and that's part of the journey of grief, but it can be difficult. Some people may describe this stage as feeling as if they're watching someone else's life on a movie screen, or they're so detached from it at the reality of what's happening. They just they just pull back and, and watch it until they can deal with it and process it. I think it's sort of, you can describe it as as trauma shock. Like there's exper- this experience of the shock of the change because it's typically, well, I shouldn't say that maybe. When we think about these stages of grief, we often think of them in terms of a dramatic loss. And so in those cases, you go into this shock reflex. And I think that similar to how we have physical shock in our bodies, that this denial phase is a little bit like that psychologically. So after your descriptions of the stages, I'll take three examples Um, of what that might look like. And I'll take them through all stages. So the first example would be a breakup or a divorce. In that situation, denial might sound like something, somebody saying, they're just upset. They'll get over it tomorrow. It's just a little flare up. They're just angry. It'll work out. It's, it'll, it'll fix itself tomorrow. In the idea of the loss of a job, it might look like saying they're mistaken this isn't real. They'll call back tomorrow to say they need me. They'll realize that there was an error and they'll call and want me back. This is only temporary. In the death of a loved one, it looks like saying, I don't feel like she's really gone. She'll come around the corner any second. I actually read an article last night where the woman was describing her reaction to her husband's death and she said she just kept feeling like she was going to look up and he was going to walk through the door at any moment. And that's sort of this example of denial stage. I agree with that too. I remember when my dad passed away back in 96, a long time ago, I just kept thinking, this is a dream. I'll wake up and tomorrow morning and I'll give him a call. You know, it, it was just, it was hard to face that. So I, I denied it for a little bit. All right, the next stage is anger. Denial may be considered a coping mechanism, but anger, I think, is a cover or a masking effect because anger is hiding many of the emotions and the pain that you're carrying. The anger may be redirected at other people, such as the person who died, your ex or your old boss. You may even aim it at objects and, you know, certain things that you're, you get angry at. While your rational brain knows the object of your anger isn't to blame, your feelings in that moment are just so intense that you can't act rationally. There's another model of grief that splits this phase into a, a subcategory of pain and guilt. This is when it first starts to hit you that your loss is real. The pain may be extremely difficult to handle. It may be physical well as well. You may get sick. You may get um, anxiety and stress. And I think that pain can come out as anger. You may even start to feel guilty about something you could have done or should have done for that person, even if it doesn't make sense. Yeah, during this stage, it's normal to wonder if there's something that you could have done that would have prevented the loss. Or you might feel remorse for not being able to make peace with a loved one that you lose. Anger may mask itself in feelings like bitterness or resentment. It may not be clear-cut fury or rage. Not everyone will experience this stage at all, and some may linger here longer. As the anger subsides, however, you do begin to think more rationally about what's happening, and then you'll start to feel those emotions that you're pushing aside. 
So examples of what the anger might look like in a breakup or divorce is, I hate him. He is gonna regret this. Or calling them names. They're stupid. They're idiots. And all those other words that we can't say on a clean podcast. (laughs) Bleep. (laughs) Bleep. Bleep. So in a job loss, it might look like they don't know what they're doing. They are terrible people. The company is awful. I hope they fail. Karma's going to get them back. If you lose a loved one, you might not be angry necessarily at them, or you might be for feeling abandonment. You might focus your anger on on them, which then induces probably some guilt. Um, or you can focus it on outside forces. You can focus it on, on God and saying, where is God in this? How dare he let this happen? It doesn't necessarily mean that the anger is focused at the loss, because like you said, it could be focused on anything around you that's just giving you an outlet for that pain that's coming out as anger. Yeah, it's and it's an important phase of, of anything. I think it's a venting. You know, you've, you've got to get that anger out. And whatever emotion it's masking, you've got to get it out. So uh, it's an important stage, I think. I think that part of this, and and maybe we'll get to this later. I've kind of forgotten if we're going to talk about this or not. A lot of this depends how we experience these stages, I think, depends a lot on our personalities. Like, I don't get angry easily. And so this, my emotions don't translate into anger very well. So I often skip this stage. I don't get mad in my normal life. And so I don't often do that in grief. But sometimes that thing that you don't do in normal life shows up in grief, and then (laughs) you're confused. I mean, that's part of what makes it confusing. And I think also, how well we have learned to process emotion, because this anger is coming out because of this vast amount of emotion that we need an intensity of emotion that we need to process. So how skilled we are at processing that I think can affect the length and and how we experience these stages. It's not something that most of us are very good at. Yeah, I mean it's it's a temperament thing, I think. Because like you said, you don't get angry very often, you process the anger well. So for you it may be a mild irritation where somebody who has a, a more volatile temperament it comes out as, as rage or anger. So. Yeah, I think mine gets channeled into one of the later phases that we'll get to later. But so the next one is bargaining. And I think bargaining, along with denial, are kind of delay tools, as I think I mentioned. They give us ways to cope outwardly and inwardly until we have a chance to figure out what's going on and figure out what we can do about it. Um, That delay does help us postpone the sadness, the confusion, the hurt, so that it's not so overwhelming. And during grief, you may feel very vulnerable and helpless. In those moments of intense emotion, it's not uncommon to look for ways to regain that control so that you feel like you can affect the outcome of that event. So in the bargaining stage of grief, you find yourself creating a lot of what-ifs and if-only statements. But to me, this is also a promise stage. I will do this if the outcome can be reversed, or I'll stop doing this if the outcome is reversed. Because we feel like we need that control, and if we start making promises or we start bargaining, it gives us a false sense of control, but at least it gives us a sense of control. And again, with the delay until we can figure out how to deal with what's going on, we feel like we have some control by making those what-if statements and only-if statements. I think that's a really interesting point because when we lose something, we have come face-to-face with the fact that we weren't in control of 
all the things around us and control of the things around us is really important. And I think that this gives us a, a way to try to re-exert that control over the situation, even if it <laughs> I mean, if typically is not going to work. It's, it's like you said, just that way of beginning to process pieces at a time and beginning to reassert control over a situation where we feel like we have no control. So examples of the bargaining stage might look in a breakup or divorce as if only I had spent more time with her, she would have stayed. Or if I get fit, he'll come back. If I look better, look more appealing, more attractive, he'll come back. True. Yeah, exactly. And in a job loss, if I'd only done more trade shows, made more calls, made more sales, brown-nosed a little more, they would have seen how valuable I am and kept me instead of Linda. (laughs) Not to call anyone out or anything. (laughs) (laughs) All names in this podcast have been changed to protect the identity of the innocent. (laughs) So in the idea of death of of a loved one, it might look like if only I had called her that night she wouldn't be gone. I could have changed the course of time by something that I had done, is essentially what you're saying. So what's the next phase? Depression. I think this is where I land instead of anger. And I think that you're right. I think that's a temperament personality thing. Well, I mean, everybody has depression at one point or another, but in this, you know, the grief stage, whereas anger and bargaining can feel very active, depression may feel like a quiet stage of grief. Um, it's very inward. It changes your your activity levels for sure. In the early stages of loss, you may be running from the emotions, trying to stay a step ahead of them. But here in depression, I think there's a good bit of reflection. You may also choose to isolate yourself from others in order to fully cope with the loss. Withdrawal from others is you know to get those feelings of grief alone is a common occurrence in this stage, and I think that's important. I mean, you do need some time alone. But if it's a common occurrence that is lasting longer and longer, you know, you may need some help and, you know, get some support from people during this stage of grief. So depression may feel like the inevitable landing point for any loss. However, this is a common place where people get stuck. And that's like I said, if you do, a therapist can help you work through this period of coping. I think that um, for someone who sort of has spent time in that place before, it will feel more familiar. But for somebody who's not prone to depression anyway, this stage could be really confusing and helpful to talk to people about because you're not necessarily just sad. This is a, it's not just that you're feeling sad in this point. And it's not necessarily that you're actively thinking through and processing this. It's this um, detachment or uh, down feeling that is, feels sort of unrelated to the loss. It's just that you aren't able to deal with life. And so um, that can be really confusing if someone hasn't experienced that before. So it is a good time to get uh, either the help of someone professional or even just to reach out to someone that you know and talk to them about the idea that you're struggling with life and how it relates to that loss. So an example of this depression stage in a breakup or divorce might look like why I go on at all. I'll be alone forever. This is going to last forever. In a job loss, I don't know how to do anything else. I can't do anything else. I, I will never get another job. So why bother trying? In the death of a loved one, I don't know how to go on without my parent or child or friend. 
I can't do it. I can't do life alone. It has to get better soon, though, after this phase, right? Right. It's an important stage, but it does get better. The other model that I researched adds a category here, and it's called the upward turn. Just when you think things can't possibly be good, nothing good is ever going to come again, you start to feel a little better each day. It may be so slight you don't even realize it, and you don't feel happy all the time, and you don't feel happy all at once. What you may feel is a little less pain, a little less sadness, a little bit more okay. And I think that's a bridge to the last stage, which is acceptance. Before we go there, let me add in a personal story here, because I remember this moment after my divorce. Uh, I had a very long divorce, like five years or six years or something like that. But there was a part in the first, I don't know, after a year or so, where I was stuck in this depression phase. When, when you grieve a divorce, you grieve a lot of things. And we talked about this last week, that, that it's not just the loss. There's these other secondary things you're grieving, you're, the loss of your dreams, the loss of your plans, all these kind of things. Loss and, of, of friends, shared friends, yeah. which that changes the friendship when you have a divorce from shared friends. Yeah. So you there's know. all these secondary things that you're grieving with. And I had been stuck in this depression phase. I, I went past the anger really quickly, went past the denial very fast, but I spent most of my time in the depression phase. And I remember, I think we have this conversation. I remember being on the phone with you and you telling me that to look for the incremental changes, that it was getting a little bit better every day and that that I would begin to see those changes happen. And when I began to see that, that I was on my way out, not that there wouldn't be ups and downs, but that once those incremental improvements would start happening and I would, I was coming out of it and I... I remember recognizing that, oh, it's not 100% dark. Like now there's a bit of there's light. A, there's a glimmer. Yeah, of, and of, that did continue to grow. Not that you <laughs> raced through at that point, but that that there was a turning point. And I remember actually being engaged with that idea that I was was looking for things to get a little bit better and a little bit better in that time. So, okay, the next one is acceptance, right? Right. Acceptance. And it's not necessarily a, a happy stage of grief that everything's all fine and dandy. It doesn't mean that you move past the grief or you, you know, you minimize it that whatever the event was that you, know, you, you didn't, you, you've moved past it completely. It does, however, mean that you've accepted it and you've come to understand it for what it is, what it means in your life and what your new normal is going to be. And you may feel very different at this stage. You, you've experienced a major change in your life, and it's upended the way you feel about so many things. But you can look to acceptance as a way to see that there are more good days than there are bad days, but there still may be some bad days, and that's okay. And you'll just figure out how to cope with that and, and you know, roll with the changes, ride the roller coaster, and, and you'll get there. So examples of the acceptance stage in a breakup or divorce might look like long-term, this was a good, healthy choice for me, or this is the hardest but most right decision that I have ever made. Or in a job loss, it might look like understanding that losing my job made me explore myself more and got me to try new things. 
with the death of a loved one, it might be, I'm so fortunate to have had so many wonderful years with him, and he will always be in my memories. So that's all of the stages, right? Well, I saw a few articles with as many as 15 stages of grief, and then some with as few as three stages of grief. And from what I was reading, they were just either more detailed with the 15 stages of grief, they just broke them down really, really, really detailed, or they just really simplified the stages of grief and gave simple explanations of the same things that we've already talked about. I think that each grief event through life will be different and will go through those stages differently um, or stay in each one differently depending on our emotional state and the circumstances at the time. I think that's really true. We talked early on in the broadcast that the idea that everyone experiences grief differently, but we also, look what you just said, need to emphasize that even we each will experience different events differently. So just because we grieved one way for one loss doesn't mean that we're going to grieve that exact same way for another loss. I think that's an interesting point. Yeah, it's very, it's very nebulous. So I want to talk a little bit for a minute about this idea, and I think I have a difficulty with the word stages, and maybe, well, let me just go into it. Michael Shermer says, we are pattern-seeking, storytelling primates trying to make sense of an often chaotic and unpredictable world. And Ada McVean adds in response to that about our subject today, the narrative of the Kubler-Ross model reminds us that whatever we're feeling now isn't permanent. It essentially guides us through a difficult time and assures us that eventually we will reach acceptance and be okay. Assuming that your experience lines up well with these five stages, you're given a sense that you are managing your grief in the, quote, right way, that you're doing well. But that's exactly the problem. And that's the end of the quote. While we think it's helpful to be familiar with these stages, one year after her own death in 2004, a new book by Kubler-Ross and David Kessler was published. And in that book, she herself remarked that the five stages are, quote, not stops on some linear timeline in grief. Not everyone goes through all of them or goes in the prescribed order. So we want you, as you listen to this, to understand these stages but we also want you to hold them loosely. There are as many different ways to grieve as there are people. And maybe it's the word stages that is maybe not the best way to think about it. Because when we think about a stage and we lay them out as these five things, we think of them as progressing through them one after another after another. Even if we, like a timeline, even if we jump back to one and we go forward one, we think of them linearly when I don't think that's really how it happens. I feel like instead, if they were in a ring around you, you might be grabbing things from one or another or both at one time. It's possible to be depressed and angry at the same time. It's possible to be in denial and angry at the same time. And so I think that Instead of maybe thinking of them as linear stages, it may be more helpful to understand that these are coping mechanisms that will help me transform through this experience of grief. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I was thinking of a couple things there. One was like, it's a spoke and you're in the center and you may go out to the the arm, the, the spoke of anger for a little while, and then you come back and then you're depressed and then you accept it, but then you get angry again. And I mean, and that's okay that you, you, you know, progress back and forth and loop around. So it's definitely not linear. And the other thing is like, they're also tool belts. They're, they're places while you're 
rebuilding, you need tools. And sometimes, you know, you're going to need the, the, the drill or the screwdriver or the hammer or the, or the sandpaper. And then you may have to go back and use those tools over again until you get to the new finished product of, of where you are in your life after that grief event. You know, we've been talking about these stages as they relate to big kinds of grief, those hurricanes and tornado experiences, but they really can apply to smaller everyday losses too. Yeah, I think that's really important to think about. And for the smaller ones, we might experience fewer of the stages or go through them really fast. But with those losses that we don't usually think about grief, it's really helpful to recognize that we might experience these emotions. Like I might need a few moments to grieve the loss of my plans if things change all of a sudden, especially if my personality means that I'm a planner and an anticipator. So if I've, I, I actually, it's funny when I was thinking about this last night, I was thinking about it in terms of of a grief situation that resulted in another secondary grief. We, when we lost my nephew a number of years ago, it started to happen before our whole family was supposed to gather on a vacation at the beach. And so we canceled the trip because we weren't sure what was going to happen. Uh, it wasn't looking good. And, and it, it all came to a head like as we were supposed to be leaving for a trip. And while my son was dealing with the grief of losing his cousin, he sort of had this fixation with this grief of losing the vacation because we had been looking forward to it for a year. We don't vacation very often. We love the beach. And so he started dealing with that loss. And other people were sort of like, okay, that's not important because you're faced with the loss of your cousin. And had I understood what we talked about last week, I think I could have walked him through that. And my family, I could have walked my family through that a little bit better. So that's one of the reasons why it's important to do this. But even small things, like if you just ignore the idea that um, that it was a big vacation, but if, if I have I've planned to go out for dinner and my friend calls and cancels, and I've been looking forward to it for a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden I'm left with this loss that wasn't a big deal, but I'm going to maybe experience some of these emotions and I need to be allowed to experience some of these emotions. So if you have a friend or you are in that situation and you're responding to them, telling them that this wasn't important, this is no big deal, get over it, is completely not helpful. Like They need to be able to experience that moment of grief, even if it's for really small things. Right. And they're intertwined. I mean, for sure, like you were talking about with your son, he was experiencing grief, the loss of his cousin through the loss of the vacation at the same time. I mean, so there's, there's many layers and, and, you know, fogginess in there. <laughs> grief and loss comes in all shapes and sizes and magnitudes, but realizing that each one needs to be dealt with or resolved will help us get through and not have lingering feelings, no matter the size of the loss. Knowing these stages can help us do that. Today's episode is brought to you by the Morning Moments Matters box, which is a super simple way to take the time you use to brew your morning coffee and turn it into a ritual that will start your day in a positive frame of mind. Great coffee and a practice that engages your body, mind, and heart. And you can check that out at connectovercoffee.link backslash MMM. Thanks so much for joining us in this conversation today. If this episode helped you, I want you to think of someone right now who would benefit from this conversation about grief and share the show with them. Until next time, stay caffeinated, y'all. 
at you. Just snapping your fingers like you knew what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. because I can only do it with my right hand. <laughs> so in that case, my right hand will always know what my left hand is doing because it ain't snapping. But it might be doing other things. Like what? Like taking your watch off so that it doesn't rattle. <laughs> <laughs> or preparing to give you the claw. No, not that. No, no, not that. <laughs> no claws. No claws, especially... Especially we're not now. Talking to, we're not talking about Santa Claus. This isn't Santa Claus. This is a whole nother thing. My kids still cringe at the claw. They should. I'm right. This is a clean show. Goodness gracious, right. <laughs> Are you ready to rumble? In this corner, Tennessee Tim, the pontificator of podcasts. In the other corner... Michelle Berkey Hill, the canad. <laughs> <laughs> you have no title for me. The Kanani, the Bonita, the beautiful one, the maker of me happy. <laughs> okay, we need to get going. <laughs> this is silly. It's a silly place. It's a silly place.